Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, a legislative effort to crack down on nursing homes in New Jersey. And under the legislation, the state would be able to limit enrollment at nursing homes that consistently rate poorly. I'll chat with State of Affairs host Steve Adubato about his interview this weekend with Governor Phil Murphy. He was challenging and engaging and interesting and, you know, it was great. It was a great half hour. Hopefully people will learn from it, more about him. And also we talked about this presidential thing, which who the heck knows? And WBGO commentator Mildred Antnor gives us her thoughts on the upcoming release of The Little Mermaid. I'm thrilled about this new adaptation, but on a deeper note, just for a minute, can we talk about what this will do to the self-esteem of little black girls? Something that little black girls need, and even as older black girls need too, we're seeing ourselves represented, and that's got to be a good thing. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. For quite some time, state lawmakers in New Jersey have called for a special hearing into the Murphy administration's handling of coronavirus-related nursing home deaths. That's prompted a state committee to clear a measure that would impose sanctions on low-performing nursing homes in the state. But not everyone is aboard. WBGO's Tennyson Donier explains. The state could soon hand out sanctions to low-performing nursing homes if lawmakers pass a legislation that would empower the Department of Human Services to dish out punitive actions. The bill is based on the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services' five-star rating system, and under the legislation, the state would be able to limit enrollment at nursing homes that consistently rate poorly. Jim McCracken is president of the New Jersey and Delaware chapter of Leading Age, a multi-state association of nonprofit senior care organizations. He says the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services star rating system is an ineffective tool for governments looking to impose sanctions. We just do not believe that the the five-star CMS rating um, system is the tool to do that. That should be left up to surveyors who are going into buildings and seeing things real time. That data can lag back two years. But we want to make sure the Department of Health has the tools to monitor facilities, make sure they're in compliance, and that should be based on um, the quality of care that's provided to the residents. The bill states that nursing homes would receive warnings prior to any sanctions. Tennyson Donier, WBGO News. Emmy Award-winning State of Affairs host Steve Adubato Jr.'s latest guest is Governor Phil Murphy. That episode airs this weekend on WNET and NJPBS. Adubato, host of One on One here on WBGO and the author of Lessons in Leadership, joins me now to talk about his State of Affairs interview with Governor Murphy. What has changed for the governor in your mind, since your last chat with him, how has his demeanor changed? We know it's the election season now. Were you thinking any differences about him? Did you notice anything different this time around? I did notice, I have my hat on, I noticed that he had more hair than he did the last time. He apparently grew it out. Uh, he was comfortable, he was relaxed. I wore a tie, as I remember he did not. Uh, but on the substance, we talked about affordability. I asked them some substantive questions, I thought, on how many people have moved out of New Jersey to Florida and the Carolinas, and he questioned my statistics, and I thought anecdotally, I know a lot of people have moved out. We talked about affordability. We talked about property taxes, talked about his anchor property tax program and the potential impact it will have or not, uh, talked about questions of tax policy in this state his relationship with the business community, talked about the migrant issue, 
He had very clear things to say about governors in states like Florida, speaking of Florida, Ron DeSantis. He thought it was terribly mean-spirited and, and cruel, and I happen to agree with him, to quote unquote, use human beings, migrants, to make a political point, to move them from Texas and Florida to states up in the North that are so-called blue liberal states. I mean, could you imagine being so cynical? To, and then these people on the other end, no one knows what they're gonna do with them and they don't know what they're gonna do and they have children and it's sickening. We talked about a whole bunch of things, including the childcare crisis. We're doing a series on public television called Reimagine Childcare. So we talked about the impact of childcare on the economy and on people's families and how hard it is to find accessible, affordable childcare. It was an interesting conversation. And yes, we revisited. We'll talk about this. I'm sure you ask me. We talked a little bit. I, every time I've interviewed him, I, I've asked him about the pandemic and the decision regarding nursing homes to send people back, whether he regrets it, whether he sees it as a mistake, whether he and Governor Cuomo at the time just agreed that this is what we're going to do together and whether he feels responsible in any way for the deaths in those nursing homes. He's like, nope, we did what was right at the time. And that's the information we had. And he challenged the premise of my question and it was, he was challenging and engaging and interesting. And, you know, it was great. It was a great half hour. Hopefully people will learn from it more about him. And also we talked about this presidential thing, which who the heck knows. State of affairs is on NJPBS and it's an in-depth analysis of critical issues that affect the lives of New Jersey residents. And Steve has been hosting this program and you are familiar with his style. He doesn't hold back when he does his interviews do you think Governor Phil Murphy has higher political aspirations? Uh, first, I'm going to clarify. Also, we're on WNET in New York because WBGO has a huge audience across the river. We're also on uh, Saturday morning when people check this out, 830 on uh, WNET and a whole range of times on NJPBS over the weekend. So higher ambition. Yes. I'm convinced that Phil Murphy, who now has a major position with the uh, Democratic Governors Association, he, he has a national, not profile, but he has relationships across the country. He can raise tons of money. He has a lot of money. Um, he was former ambassador, as we know. And uh, yeah, but this whole thing about President Biden, I'm not a big handicapper politically. That bores me, like scorecard and who's ahead, who's. But the thing about President Biden running or not running will say everything about whether Phil Murphy and or Senator Cory Booker run for the wind up running for the presidency. If President Biden runs for reelection, I do not see any other substantive meaningful Democrat challenging him, regardless of whether he's, he'll be 82 at the time. That's, uh, it's going to be tough. But I, yes, I do believe the governor wants to run for higher office. One of the topics that you discussed with the governor is one that I think a lot of people are confused. So I'm going to have you maybe lay it out for us a little bit about the new public school sex education curriculum. You speak with him about that. What are people getting right? What should people understand about this? And what were your thoughts about what the governor had to say? Well, first of all, as a, as a parent of a 12-year-old, my wife and I talk about this a lot with our daughter in public schools. She's in the seventh grade. 
And we've asked, actually, we've asked her about it because sometimes kids who are actually in the classroom along with teachers, they can tell you what's real as opposed to politicians who think they know or people in the media who think they know. Um, I, first of all, I believe that the State Department of Education that did announce these curriculum changes around sex ed and health education, while they announced it, Doug, <laughs> let's just say there was a lot of butt covering, meaning they announced it, but they did not make a big deal about it. They were not very assertive and aggressive on the media end in saying exactly what it was and what it was not. So it left a lot of conjecture. It left, it left a lot of people to speculate. And then for people who said, look at what they're teaching, they're teaching 10-year-olds that they can decide whether they're a boy or a girl and they have an option and they're teaching about all these perverted sex act. None of that, that's just not true. That's not true. What is a true, what appears to be true is that there's a so-called age-appropriate sex education curriculum that, listen, could it be challenged and questioned about certain issues that are raised? Yes. However, the opt-out reality is a reality. And some people are saying you can possibly opt. No, you can outright opt out. You can opt out of that as a parent. However, I'm saying that from my understanding of it, Doug, that the curriculum that's being taught, at least for me as a parent, for my wife as a parent, is in fact age appropriate for our 12-year-old daughter. And it's what we believe our daughter should be aware of regarding her body, her interaction with others, um, health and sex education. Yeah, that's, but that's my choice. That's our choice as parents. The governor argued that it's being politicized by many who want to gain cheap political points from it. And I think it's by distorting what it is and saying that's some things it is when it's not. Um, and I believe he's right about that. That's just my view. Since it is the election season, what role is the governor in your mind playing in local races? Is, is he as active as you would think he would be or... Is he out front with certain candidates? We know of a few that he has spent time with, but what's your overall thought? So, you know, um, I don't know, somebody once said, money is the mother's milk of politics. And corny, but true. Governor Murphy's greatest contribution, and this is interesting because a lot of what he did to put himself in a position to gain the Democratic nomination for governor several years ago was to contribute heavily to Democratic Party organizations in counties and municipal level. Governor contributes. His PAC, I guess, contributes. I don't know if he contributes personally, but a lot of it's money. It's not that the governor is so popular or unpopular. I think he's neutral in terms of his impact on a race. Um, and and I, I believe the governor's greatest contribution is money. I don't like saying it, but I believe it's true. And he's been very generous in that way. He's been very strategic and smart by spreading that money around. And I believe he will continue to do that, not just in New Jersey, Doug, which is particularly important to the audience of the journal, but I believe he's going to continue to do it nationally in key races across this nation because that may matter down the road for his future politically. You mentioned key races in, in other states. Now, I travel to the Pittsburgh area to spend time with family and my mom. 
inundated with political ads for the races there in Pennsylvania. It seems much more. Now they have higher races, higher offices that are mm-hmm. going this time than New Jersey, but it seems like political advertising in Pennsylvania is much stronger than here in the Garden State. Is that the case? Uh, by the way, when you were there in Pennsylvania, did you run into Dr. Oz or did you see him in Bergen County? I, I, <laughs> I did not see him in, in PA. Well, I, I, I just, you know, I guess that's his business where he lives. So, yeah, it's a huge race in Pennsylvania. I'm not going to go. I'm not an expert on that, but we do see a lot of those hear about those spots. You saw them when you were in Pittsburgh, you know, it's a town, a city you love. Um, yeah, because our races for the U.S. Senate are not competitive because there are 1.1 million more Democrats in New Jersey than there are Republicans, because we haven't elected a Republican senator for a long time, a U.S. senator. And yes, we've elected Republican governors because somehow on the executive end, mm, we're not as blue as people think. But yeah, political advertising in Pennsylvania, they spend way more money on it um, than they do in New Jersey. But remember, New Jersey is tapped on both ends, the New York market, the number one market, and I believe Philly's number four, I'm not sure, in the nation. Uh, so it's not cheap, but there are not many races that are as competitive as the race for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. And is there a race for governor in Pennsylvania too? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of money. And you mentioned a, a really important point that I think a lot of people are it, it, it's it's even come to maybe a little bit of a boiling point is competition for seats. And we've seen it for years in New Jersey. Uncontested races or races that just don't bring people to the polls. Will this ever change, Steve? So pe- people are going to be bored by a conversation or some some things I raised. So if I talk about redistricting, gerrymandering, oh God, bore me, will you, Steve? Well, redistricting every 10 years based on population census, Democrats, Republicans get together and they figure out how to divvy up 40 legislative districts, X number of congressional districts based on population because there are only 435 members of the House of Representatives and some states gain population, we may lose it. That being said, When races are not competitive, it not only has voters turned off because they don't think their vote matters, and frankly, they're right in a lot of cases, but it also allows for both Democrats and Republicans to be incredibly extreme. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, You don't need me, Doug, the way you've, you've covered this, you understand it. The extreme polarization of political views in this nation nationally and statewide. So a Republican can get elected as a, quote, Trump Republican in a primary. But if that Trump hard right, make America great again, January 6th was no big deal Republican. If that Republican can win a Republican primary, but has to run against a Democrat in a highly competitive race where there are a comparable number of D's and R's, that's tough. But if that kind of Republican or an extreme left-wing progressive socialist, not that that's a bad thing across the board, but there are some Democrats that are so far left 
But if they're in a district with virtually all Democrats, it doesn't make a difference. If that MAGA Trump January 6th Republican gets elected in a, in a primary or nominated and they're virtually all Republicans, that person's going to be in Congress. That person's going to be in elective office making decisions based on that mentality, which is so far right, so far left. That's not where the vast majority of us are. That doesn't represent the nation. And it makes it harder to come together and get things done. That's the problem. State of Affairs is on WNET and NJPBS. The Emmy Award-winning anchor of State Affairs, Steve Adubato, is joining us here. Steve, usually in an interview, we lead with the, the top issue, but you brought it up, but I'm going to return to it, and that's affordability in the state of New Jersey. And you did have a discussion with the governor uh, during this current interview that will be airing this weekend on public broadcasting. Are you satisfied with his response when you say, you know, people are moving to Florida and you know, why people can't people can't make ends meet here and, and, and they're leaving the state? No, I'm not. I'm actually not. Because, you know, you ever notice, Doug, how people can find statistics to reinforce or support an argument they have, whatever that argument is. And I'm sure the governor can point to statistics about how many people are moving and how many people are coming in. When people are coming in, yeah, I get that. But anecdotally, Doug, I know too many people who have argued that our taxes are too high, property taxes. Um, it's not affordable in the state. And businesses that will argue that other states are more business friendly. Now, I'm not in the governor's position. I know he's juggling a lot of different interests and sometimes those interests compete with each other. But the truth is, I would have rather the governor acknowledge that we are losing people. And some of those people, Doug, are high income earners who pay a lot in income tax and a lot in property tax. Now, if they move to Florida, anecdotally, for one more than half of the number of days in the year, then they don't have to pay any income tax in New Jersey and they pay no income tax in Florida because Florida has no income tax. Now, at a certain point, that begins to add up in lost revenue. I know it's anecdotal. I wish the governor would acknowledge that that's an issue. I don't believe that's his fault. It's been going on for years. But to say that's just not true, eh, I, don't, I, have no, I don't understand why it's so difficult for so many elected officials to say, yep, such and such is going on. It's a problem. I take responsibility for this part of it. And here's what we're doing moving forward. I know we wanted to talk about his anchor property tax program, and that's fine. And it's a good thing. But it doesn't address the issue of how many people are leaving because they can't afford it. It's more complex than that. Um, and, and it's not his fault by himself. And it's not terrible to say, yeah, it's happening. Doug, you know and I know. We're losing people. You had an opportunity many times to interview the late Governor Jim Florio. So before we go, I just wanted to get some thoughts. To me, he got a bad rap because I think that a lot of people just take a look at, you know, the tax issue for him. Uh, he laid it out on why he did it, um, was not popular. But I will say when he was governor, I noticed 
better things in my paycheck <laughs> than many other times. So the legacy of Jim Florio, according to Steve Adubato, is... Wow. I've been ducking this because Florio didn't like me. He actually told people... <laughs> Douglas is true story. And, and again, extraordinary, a great leader, courageous, stepped up, raised taxes. Trust me, I asked him about it enough times in interviews that he was peeved that I even asked him about it. He said he wasn't going to raise taxes. Governor, you said you weren't going to raise taxes. Then you heard the people. Well, didn't you hear the people before? He didn't like any part of it. He didn't like me, but he did raise taxes. He was a champion on the environment, super fun site as a congressman, helped clean up those sites. A great leader. I was big, and he would also argue with me when I said personality and demeanor matters, and he would tell me I was making too much of it because I thought, do you ever smile? And I know we're not supposed to speak ill of those who have passed, and this is not ill, but he actually told people at a funeral we were at of another major public figure. This person came up to me. It was someone who was with Florio, and it's a very, very prominent person. I was walking over to say hello to this group of governors, and he was there. And this person said, Florio turned to him and said, I hate Steve Adubato. jeez. Oh, <laughs> and I know I'm not supposed to say that happened, but it was credible. This, I am not going to divulge the source. I believe that's what the governor said. And I know he didn't like me. I respected him. Didn't always love his personality. It was not a lot of fun to interview but someone whose legacy, and actually we have a new series on public television called Remember Them. We're remembering incredibly important, significant figures. And unfortunately we will be featuring Governor Florio and excerpts from previous interviews I did with him when you'll see why he didn't like me, <laughs> but also why he was such a memorable and impactful leader in this state. And I think that's I'm sure. Edit that out. No, I'm like kidding. <laughs> no, but I think it's a reason why people need to watch State of Affairs and watch this interview with Governor Florio because it's clear that you ask questions that make politicians and other leaders uncomfortable, and you say your piece. And I think you know the fact that you you gave. Jim Florio his due just moments ago, but you also said, hey, he, he didn't like me and there were certain things maybe I didn't like about him. And I think being honest is, you know, is what we need to have uh, when we have hosts of, of shows. And that's why you're an Emmy award-winning anchor on State of Affairs. You can catch Steve's interview with Governor Phil Murphy. That will be- I don't know if he likes me, but that's another story. Yeah, I did. I did want to, I, I did want to ask that. Um, if, the if jury's you out. <laughs> <laughs> well, By the way, did you say? Did you say Emmy award winning? I did. <laughs> I, did. I, did. I, I did. I have no idea how that Emmy. If you're seeing this on video, I have no idea how that Emmy wound up behind me. I have no idea. <laughs> and and you said four Emmys or just one? I said an Emmy award winning anchor. Just, I didn't say any. I didn't say one, four, or anything like that. It's not about me, Doug. I apologize. It's not 62, <laughs> so it doesn't really matter, Steve. <laughs> just say, Aaron Judge, Steve Adubato, humility. <laughs> Always great to talk to you, Steve. Congratulations on another State of Affairs show with uh, Governor Phil Murphy this time around. And uh, we look forward to watching it and hearing what the governor has to say.
Well, it's better to talk to you and listen to you and learn from you every day in WBGO and the great station and great colleagues you have. And the journal is the best. And Doug, only on WBGO um, on the journal could I wear this hat, feel comfortable. And I know how big a Yankee fan you are. But I will say I am a fan of Aaron Judge and have been since he started playing. I think he's a freak because he's such a big man, but he's also so humble. And he showed that after breaking Roger Maris's mark. I mean, he's the he's Derek Jeter stretched out, isn't he? He is. And, and, and you see in his humility how humble he is. I know that reminds you a lot of me, Doug, first of all. I just want to clarify that. <laughs> But also, in all seriousness, he that's one of the things that I'm a student of leadership, as you know, uh, and you may have promoted my book, Lessons in Leadership, which I think is behind me somewhere. I talk about humility. So I'm fascinated by when he would strike out, it was, it was, as he was, I wore this hat the whole time getting to 62. Even when he struck out or they walked him or he just didn't get a hit, he would go back to the dugout. And I know this sounds so corny, but it's so true. He was constantly rooting for the team. And I thought, would I do that? <laughs> you know, how many people would do that? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Aaron Judge fan, not just because he's a freak and that's a compliment. And he's so athletic and he's so talented. And we're seeing a once in a lifetime player. But the person he appears to be as a teammate and a human being, I'm a fan. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Steve. You can see the entire interview with Steve Adubato on the WBGO Facebook page. Ever since it was announced that the live-action film The Little Mermaid will have a black actress playing the lead character, social media posts pro and con have been flying around. WBGO commentator Mildred Antinor is one of those who's looking forward to seeing the film. The live-action film, The Little Mermaid, is slated to premiere in theaters on May 26, 2023. And boy, oh boy, am I excited. Hal Bailey, who plays The Little Mermaid, has a stunning voice. Her singing is simply heavenly. Mind you, I don't have little nieces and nephews to take to this movie, but heck, I'm going to see it for myself. I'm thrilled about this new adaptation. But on a deeper note, just for a minute, can we talk about what this will do to the self-esteem of little Black girls? I viewed the reactions of little Black girls as they watched the trailer for the first time, and their eyes lit up. They smiled from ear to ear. It gave me chills. And I have to admit, I got a little teary-eyed. I saw myself in these little girls. And it was another confirmation for me about how important representation is. They're seeing themselves represented on the big screen, and that spells validation. Something that little Black girls need, and even as older Black girls need too, we're seeing ourselves represented, and that's got to be a good thing. Now, I have to address that not everything about the announcement of The Little Mermaid was about butterflies and roses. According to reports, within two days of the release of the trailer, 1.5 million people disliked it in the first two days. Some of the idiotic and flat-out racist comments that came out against The Little Mermaid being Black were... The underwater scenes were unrealistic, or I'm a Disney purist and Ariel doesn't look anything like she did in the cartoon, or Ariel can't be black because she lives at the bottom of the ocean, which means that she gets no sunlight, which means that her skin should be pale. Or how about some of the memes that appeared all over the internet? One meme changed the title from The Little Mermaid to The Little Slave. Another meme depicted The Little Mermaid leaning on a watermelon. And of course, there were the hashtags, not my Ariel, having begun circulating all over Twitter. 
Is this what we've come to? People are losing their minds over a fictional character? Geez. If the Little Mermaid offends you because she is now portrayed as a Black woman, maybe you should seek out some professional help and deconstruct your hatred and xenophobia to find out why you're so offended. As I think about it a little further, I have to admit, I suppose that when you're familiar with entitlement and opportunities on a regular basis, equality feels like discrimination. I think about all of the movies made about real historical people who we know from the history books were not white, but were portrayed by white actors. For example, look at Elizabeth Taylor, who portrayed Cleopatra, or Angelina Jolie, who portrayed Marion Pearl, the woman of color and the wife of the slain journalist Daniel Pearl. And what about John Wayne, who portrayed the Mongol ruler Genghis Khan? There are so many more examples, but I think you get the picture. It feels strange, doesn't it? Or should I say it feels uncomfortable? God forbid we feel uncomfortable about anything these days. Who knows, maybe the world will come to an end if we feel uncomfortable. But I must tell you that for years, Black people and people of color have always had to take a back seat and become invisible. And let me make it clear that those examples that I just cited were real historical figures. For those losing their minds over the Little Mermaid, I get it, you're not front and center anymore and it hurts. But the fact is that America is getting more and more diverse. According to the U.S. Census report, by 2045, they're projecting that the U.S. will become a majority diverse country, which means that we will most likely see more and more people of color in central character roles to reflect the population. That is something that we should get used to. And thank God for that. I'm Mildred Antonor. Mildred Antonor is a professor and the author of The Gladioli Are Invisible a memoir. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to WBGO and WBGO.org.